The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in May 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the well-known Broadway choreographer, now director. It sounds pretty good to say director, doesn't it? Wow. <laughs> Jerry Mitchell, welcome to Downstage Center. Thank you so much for having me. Jerry, let me just run through a few of your playbill credits. You received the Tony Drama Desk and Outer Critics Circle Awards for choreographing the 2005 Tony Award-winning Best Revival of La Cage Oh, yes. You've also been nominated for several other shows in the same categories, Hairspray, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and many other award nominations for shows like The Full Monty and Never Gonna Dance, Revivals of Gypsy, Rocky Horror Show, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. You conceived, directed, and choreographed Broadway Bears, Benefits for Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, all of that as a choreographer and as a performer originally, True. now as a director and choreographer of Legally Blonde. Yeah. Well, it's the first time as a director, for sure. But all of the Broadway Bears events, actually, I was a director, too, uh-huh. uh, conceiving those benefits and uh, directing and choreographing them. Uh, but when people say, you know, this is your first time out directing on Broadway, I say, yes, but I was a choreographer, and a choreographer directs, you just mm-hmm. do it with feet as opposed to words. Right, right. But did you have to really pitch someone to say, you know, now let me do it all? I mean, you've worked in collaboration with terrific directors, notably Jack O'Brien. Yeah. But getting a producer to to say, I'm going to put it all in your hands. I, I, You'd have to ask Hal Luftig, Kristen Katsky, Mike Isaacson, and Dory Bernstein whatever possessed them to give me this opportunity. But I think... Uh, I certainly I'm not fo- I'm not starting the trend. I'm following in the footsteps of many great dancers, choreographers who turned directors who went well before me and have done incredible bodies of work. I think it's sort of a natural step for a choreographer. Uh it's really about seeing the whole picture. And a musical has to be um seamless. It's one of the reasons that I work so well with Jack O'Brien and the collaborations that we had have been so seamless because the truth be told, I could get up and direct a scene and have, and Jack could get up and choreograph a dance and has. I mean, we literally work like that when we're working together. We are, uh, you know, certainly he's the director and I'm the choreographer, but we are we are of one mind on every project that we work on. And that's really what makes a musical have a very distinctive uh, flavor. But now it's just your mind. So is it is. It, is, is, is that daunting? My lonely mind. <laughs> um, it was. It, well, you know what? It was lonely for the first time <laughs> because I didn't have my collaborator, that person with me, uh, you know, 24-7. Uh, so that was an adjustment for me. Um, but but it was not daunting. I was ready for this and certainly ready for this on this musical. So when Jerry Mitchell, the director now, and Jerry Mitchell, the choreographer, get into a dispute over something to do, <laughs> a dance movement or a stage movement. I usually order. kick the choreographer out of the room. No, <laughs> I, 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 would, I had a hat on my table during rehearsals and I would put it on when I was the choreographer and I would take it off when I was the director. And I'd say, the, the director's out of the room. Let's change the choreography now. So I... Uh, that's a little joke with the cast. That's very cute. <laughs> you mentioned the producers of the show and that they 
had the idea to come to you to do the whole thing. When did you come into the process of the show? Because I read one interview which seemed to indicate that the show wasn't even fully written when it you wasn't. got involved. It so wasn't. tell us about that. I mean, there are many ways to do a musical, and uh, I've... I've been in on the stages of different ones, and I can tell you all about each one that I've done. But this particular musical, they had the rights to turn it into a musical, but they didn't have a team together yet. And they wanted the director involved from the start. And they approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in directing and choreographing the project. And I told them why I thought I would be uh, interested and why I thought I could do it. And they actually allowed me into the process of helping choose the team, which was truly an an inspiring process, an interesting process. Um, there were several composers who wanted to write um, Legally Blonde, the musical, and they had all given the producers a sample of what they might do. And I asked the producers to put all of the music on one CD and not tell me who wrote anything. And so I listened to it and I chose these songs that I thought told the story the best in lyric and music and style, or at least in to me, what told the story the best. And uh, it ended up being Larry Now, and uh, which was really thrilling for me because Larry O'Keefe, was, who wrote Bat Boy, also had collaborated with me on a early, early um, choreographic thing. I did the Geppetto movie with Drew Carey. And Larry was my dance arranger. Put together, we were put together by Stephen Schwartz, and uh, that was the first time we ever worked together. So this was really thrilling for me. And now I had not worked with, but I had I'd seen their stuff and listened to their stuff, and I was just, you know, they're so smart and so talented, and it was such a great experience. So they were on board. I loved what they had to say. We were looking for a book writer, and. Uh, several people were expressing interest, and I think Hal had mentioned to me Hal Luftig uh, this movie Freaky Friday with Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan, and um, I loved the movie. And uh, so this one woman in California named Heather Hawk, uh, I went to meet her, and the night before I met her, I read another screenplay that she had written that had not been made into a movie. It was all about sorority sisters. And it was truly in the voice of Elle Woods and the Delta News. And she walked to the table the next morning with her hair pulled back in a ponytail ponytail, and a little skirt and a little purse. And she looked like Elle Woods. And I went, oh, my God, this is Elle Woods. And that was it. But for your first time out, you're mentioning screenplay credits. Had she done stage work? Nothing. Because for you taking on directing fully for the first time in a book musical... To bring on a book writer who had not written the book of a Broadway musical, what what was the process of, of pulling this team together then? Well, the process, once we were a team, was writing the show. And that process was truly, uh, it was amazing. And, and I'm so happy that I've gone through it and had this collaboration with these writers and and experienced, you know, people think Legally Blonde, oh, it's easy to make a movie into a musical. It's the fifth one I've had the uh, good graces of being a part of. And I have a sixth coming up and a seventh, and it's not going away. I am not the person who is necessarily in charge of choosing each and every one of these projects, but the people and the collaborations and the stories are 
are exciting to me and things I want to tell. So having gone through the process of writing Legally Blonde, which was a four-year process, a four-year process, taking the film and turning that film into a musical that we all believed in and felt excited about, and uh, obviously the audience too. I mean, they're screaming at the end of the act. They love the show. The kids, the people who the story is meant to entertain are getting one thing out of it. And the people who are bringing those people to the theater are getting a completely different show. And so the show works on two different levels, and that's been truly thrilling. Well, as I recall the movie, I, your stage show seems to pretty faithfully follow the, 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 the plot line of the movie. It does. It pretty much follows the plot line, sure. She's a girl who uh, gets dumped, follows her uh, beloved to Harvard. Well, she isn't just a girl. She's a, she's a princess, a Barbie. She is. A girl. She <laughs> is. She's a very special girl. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but she does. She gets dumped, and she follows her one true love to Harvard to try and get him back, and in the meantime finds out who she is, and then ends up with the right person or a person who respects her for her smarts and her beauty. Now, when you cast the show, you you were probably the prime person casting. What what were you looking for? Vulnerability. Uh As you said, she's a uh, very well-to-do young blonde woman with uh, not, at first glance, a lot of problems. So how do you feel for that girl? How do you get involved in that girl? How does she win you over to root for her? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I needed somebody who could play the part with an honesty, with a reality, and you would actually care about her. And Laura Bell does all those things, Laura Bell Bundy. You had the opportunity that not every show has these days to go out of town first. And <laughs> for a show that you say you were working on for four years, I'm wondering what the experience was for you when you first got it up in front of an audience in San Francisco. uh, Well, there was a lot of debate about going out of town. And there was, for financial reasons, producers and uh, company managers and general managers saying, well, we could stay in town and do, you know, four shows on Saturday and Sunday, and we could work Monday through Friday. And I said, and tech, an original musical in front of a New York audience, are you crazy? I wanted to get as far away from this town as possible. Uh, I I was brought up in the theater and sort of uh, I my belief is that the work doesn't start really until you're in front of the audience. The audience will inform you about everything about a musical. After all, we are providing a form of entertainment and they will tell us when they're following it when they're not following it, when they're confused, when they're not confused, when they're enjoying it, when they're not enjoying it. If you listen, you can certainly shape things, and that that time is invaluable. I mean, I can't imagine anyone investing money in a brand new Broadway musical and not taking part of that investment out of town where you have... Basically, when you go out of town, you double your time. You double your time. You have two tech... Uh, tech times, you have two preview periods, you have two uh, basically sections, four-week sections in front of audiences to work on the material, and that's time. Time gives you a show. And although it's not in front of New York critics, it is in front of critics out of town, but it's also kind of like hidden. It's It's a warm-up. Yeah, exactly. It's really a warm-up. It's your first go, and uh, like I said, the audience will, will help you. They'll be your friend. They're your last scene partner. 
So if I saw the show in San Francisco and then went to see it here in New York at the Palace, is what would be the significant differences? Tighter. Cleaner. So no big numbers cut or One added? One new song. Uh, we, we cut a song called Love and War in the first act that was sung by the Greek chorus, the Delta New Girls, when they come back. Uh, in our show on the Broadway stage, I wanted to, I wanted her friends to actually have a physical presence, not just a, a vocal presence in the film. They call, they talk to each other on the phone, but I thought it would be nice to actually have them there so they could sing and dance. And I think it was Nell and Larry who had the first idea of having, introducing them as a Greek chorus, which was a brilliant idea. The first song that we actually had written for them was called Beacon of Positivity, which got cut in the workshop and replaced by this song called Love and War. And what we found in front of the audience in San Francisco was the girls were saying such evil things, the audience was turning off. They didn't want Elle's friends to be quite so mean and vicious. So they took some of the snappy lyrics and kept them, but they changed the tune to uh, positive. Keep it positive as you slap her to the floor. Keep it positive as you pull her hair and call her whore. But the audience loved it because the girls were being snide, but they were being positive about it. And uh, it certainly moved the first act. It really, it just took that little chunk out in the first act where we were just kind of like, mm, you know, waiting. Well, for the radio audience who may not have seen the show yet, uh, the Greek chorus to which you refer is basically a technique that was employed centuries ago oh, yeah. in Greece. Well, that's the fun. And it's the opening number is the sorority sisters in the role of the Greek chorus. In the singing. Greek house. In the, in, in in the, the Delta in the New House, house right? singing, oh my God, you yeah, guys. Yeah. So the perfect way to bring them back is as a Greek chorus. Yeah. And they continue to support Elle throughout the first act and in the, in the beginning of the second act. So when they finally come to see her... Um, at the trial, and they say, "Oh my God, Al, we're here!" And she goes, "Thanks, I don't need Greek, Greek. Uh, I don't need my Greek chorus today." She says, "No, no, no, we're really here, here." And uh, the audience really loves following those girls. The opportunity in creating a show for a director choreographer is, of course, the opportunity to decide not only about the songs in the book, but where the show dances. And I'm wondering, yes. <laughs> given your experience, how did you make the decisions? Because while there are a few big numbers, it's not a constant dance show. No. I, one of the things I knew about this show is that it wouldn't dance like something like, for instance, Hairspray dances. Hairspray is about a dance show, a teen dance show, and the dream of the leading lady is to be a dancer on it. So dance steps from that period uh, informed the story. With Legally Blonde, I had to find places in this musical where the the girls actually could dance and it wouldn't seem out of place. But one of the things that I love to do, talking about seamlessness as a director choreographer, is not only watch the dancers dance, but watch the show dance. I mean, Legally Blonde, the first act runs one hour and six minutes and there is no blackout and there is not one minute in the show when it isn't in motion. Uh, we do stop for songs like Ireland, and we do stop for songs like Blood in the Water, and we stop within songs for important moments. But the show, the story is cinematic. It continues. The, mo the motion continues. I mean, we're literally in Southern California, and one second later, we're in the Harvard admissions office, and everybody is going, how did that happen? You know, that's the brilliance of David Rockwell's 
genius set, in my opinion, and our collaboration and how we built this show to move because I knew that the audience that was going to be watching it was a much more of a today audience that is constantly being um, uh, introduced to video and, and, and YouTube and the way information comes at young people. It's so bombastic in so many ways. I wanted to, uh, rather than shy away from that, I wanted to embrace that spirit in this musical. Well, you bring up the name David Rockwell, who, of course, was also the scenic designer on Hairspray. And the he look was. of that show is very important. The look of this show is very important. And this show, Legally Blonde, has a, a constant movement of scenery as well as people. Yes. That, even the scenery is choreographed in well, a sense. Well, David and I worked for over a year and a half on the transitions and the way the show would um, sort of deliver itself. Uh, I, I first met David on um, the Rocky Horror Show. I was the choreographer, and uh, and he designed the set, and it was a spectacular set, uh, you know, just amazing. It was the first time I met him, and I and I was getting ready to to work on hairspray, and I said to Jack O'Brien, I said, "You've got to meet him because I've never worked with anyone like him. He is someone." He once said to me, "If I knew the answer, I wouldn't want the job, because part of the." the joy is discovering it that's the part of that's the part of any musical working on it and discovering discovering how you're going to tell the story so we did hairspray together then jack fell in love with him we did dirty rotten scoundrels together we did legally blonde together we're talking about two other projects i'm leaving for las vegas this weekend we're pitching a huge uh, uh burlesque show that has already been purchased uh to present in vegas at one of the casinos and it's, not, it's very exciting. I love collaborating with him. Well, I read somewhere that uh, in some ways your own life parallels that of Elle Woods because she, uh, <laughs> she kind of has, has discovered her true self in the process of the show. And you started as a boy, but being interested at age eight or whatever in, in theater yeah. in a town that wasn't very encouraging the people interested in theater. Well, I came from a very, very small town. Uh, many people know Pawpaw, Michigan, because I did mention it when I won the Tony Award. <laughs> I got teased a lot about that, but it is a small town. It had one stoplight, four corners. Um, my family is not in the business at all. I grew up very athletic, uh, all sports, basketball, football, track. Not usually something we hear from, from people who grow up to be dancers oh, and choreographers. I, I love sports. I, I still play everything, and, and my brother's an athletic director. My nephew's just been drafted by the Phillies. Um, very athletic family and, and town I come from. And um, so, But I was lucky enough to have a dance. There was a dance studio in the town, and there was a dance teacher who had her eye on me from a very young age. And she always offered me free classes, and I never took them up because, of course, you're afraid of being called sissy at that age. And uh, I um, decided when I broke my collarbone on the way home from football practice, racing my friend on his Solex, you know, one of those bikes with a motor, um, that I would take up tap to keep my legs in shape for basketball. That was a excuse. <laughs> but uh, once I was in the dance class, you couldn't turn me away. I was also performing already with the Papa Village Players. There was a community theater group in my hometown. And once I started doing that, I reached out to the Kalamazoo Community uh, Civic Theater and Youth Group. I apprenticed at Hope Summer Repertory Theater in Holland, Michigan uh, when I was a sophomore in uh, high school. 
And then I got picked up and did a national tour of West Side Story with the Young Americans. I don't know if you know who they were, but they were a singing group, and they picked me up out of high school. So I left my senior year, gave up the presidency of the high school and all my sports, and went on the road, one-night stands, and 300 cities, 42 states in six months, and, uh, and got my feet wet. In a it, national tour. And got college credit to do it, actually. High school credit. Got high school credit. They let me go. Came back. Graduated with my class. And uh, I was on my way. Well, your high school principal, as I read, kind of encouraged us, saying it's going to happen anyway. He, he so said, you know, well. we all know where you're going, uh-huh. so go. Go. Uh-huh. And just come back. Take the government exam. You'll graduate. And I did. Uh-huh. And then I went off to uh, Webster College, where I was in the conservatory for two years. Um and studying dance every day because your freshman year in conservatory, you can't perform as an actor. I was in the musical theater conservatory. And uh, I came to New York. I got my equity card at the Muni my summer after my freshman year. Came to New York during my sophomore year, and I went with friends to an audition to for Brigadoon, Agnes DeMille. Got the show. Went back to college. They said, we'll let you go to New York and be in a Broadway show. Um came to New York to be in Brigadoon, and when it closed, instead of going back to college, the next week I was in Woman of the Year with Lauren Bacall at the Palace Theater. <laughs> well, let's not, let's not gloss over this, because you mentioned Agnes DeMille, and the casual listener might go, oh, sure, Agnes DeMille did the original no. choreography. Agnes DeMille, the Agnes DeMille. You auditioned for Agnes DeMille, and you worked with Agnes DeMille for your Broadway debut. First Broadway show. What? And she picked me to, to understudy uh, the role of Harry Beaton. And rehearsed with me. And she was in a wheelchair at this time. She had already had her stroke. And uh, and it was... Jamie Jameson was her associate. And uh, it was inspiring to watch her work. Mm-hmm. really well, was. Well, tell us about... Well, I mean, what... Specific, I mean, that's getting it from specific, Olympus. Specific. She was just specific. At that age, in that condition, she was specific. Everything was very clear and what she expected of you was very clear. And uh, details are really, it's, 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 it's all about the details. And, uh, you know, Brigadoon is, is an, an incredible musical, and the dances in Brigadoon are amazing. And at that point, I was probably in the best condition of my life as a ballet dancer, and it's truly all ballet training in that show. Uh, unfortunately, ballet training has slipped from the Broadway vernacular in most dances and in most shows. Uh, it's not that I don't think it's still uh, necessary because I do think it is. I think good ballet technique is great because it makes you a better dancer in every aspect. Um, but to have had that experience with Agnes DeMille as my first Broadway experience as a dancer was truly unbelievable. Well, what is it about ballet technique that, that makes you a better dancer overall? Well, ballet technique teaches you... It's kind of like learning the basics. It's kind of like learning the ABCs. Uh-huh. I mean, you once you have those basics, your body... You're much more in control of your body to learn other styles. Is it because of the discipline of uh, ballet? No, it's not the discipline. It's the training. You're, uh-huh. What your body is capable of uh-huh. doing. It allows your body to have you know, a very clear center of balance, which allows you to pick up other styles of dance much quicker, I think. <clears throat> on Your Toes was one of the next dancing credits for you. Now, again, incredible. Um, Donald Sadler choreographed the revival, but certainly 
after and, and Peter and Peter Martin and Peter Martin Peter Martin's was involved after also. the Balanchine. So yeah. again, certainly very much classical technique yes. involved. What was going into that show? What was doing that like? Uh, let's see. On Your Toes was, I think, the fourth Broadway musical I had done. I I was in Brigadoon, Woman of the Year, and then I was in Barnum for the very last few months of Barnum. I came in and worked on Barnum, and then On Your Toes. And Donald was, again, an amazing choreographer to uh, work with and learn from, not only because of his classical training, but because of his Broadway work. And Peter Martins really was there setting the Balanchine Ballets, the end of the first act, the Princess Zenobia Ballet and the Slaughter on 10th Avenue Ballet. Donald was there doing all the new choreography for the for the revival, all of the uh, Bach, Beethoven and Brahms, um, the On Your Toes, the, the title number was a was a huge uh, competition between the tappers and the balleters. And I was actually a tapper. I was on the tap side. And uh, but I was in the Princess Zenobia Ballet also, and I was in Slaughter on Tenth Avenue, and you know, so I was in just about everything in that. But Donald was, uh, you know, his his um, choreographic talent, his Broadway training was something new for me to uh, study under because this was the first time I had worked with a choreographer from the ground up on any show. Uh, Brigadoon was a revival. I was working with Agnes and uh, and Jamie. Uh, I came into Woman of the Year, and it was already... I literally was hired the week it opened, and I was the swing. Barnum had been running forever, and I came in as a swing. Uh, I had been in a chorus line, and I came in as the show was running. But this was the first time starting from scratch. So I was there as the numbers were being created, and all of the new numbers were created by Donald Sadler. Quite brilliantly. As we talk about, we're talking about such major choreographers. I think before we come back to talking about your work, we would be remiss if we did not ask you about the experience of assisting Jerome Robbins well, on Jerome Robbins Broadway. Let me tell you about the order of events, because actually after Donald Sadler, while I was in On Your Toes, I uh, met Michael Bennett. And Michael uh, Bennett, Michael Bennett asked me to come and dance. He actually asked me to come and dance around with my partner then, Jody Mocha, on this new project. And it was called Scandal, and I didn't know much else. And so, of course, Michael Bennett asked you to come dance. We show up. <laughs> so you show up in the room, and we're dancing. And about three weeks later, he and Bob Avian asked Jody and I if we would... Uh, not only dance in the show, but if we would be assistant choreographers, uh, because we were working very closely with them on creating the Menage a Trois Ballet, which was a story ballet in the piece where Susie Kurtz is having a Menage a Trois. And she looks up at the ceiling and she says, Oh, the, the angels are dancing, and the Botticelli angels lower themselves to the stage and they do this ballet with her. And Jody and I and Danny Herman and Angelique Gilio and Mark Hobie and we were all in the chorus dancing this incredible Cynthia Rubia uh, uh, ballet that Michael had conceived with our help in the partner work. But this is all in workshop. All in workshop. Because many people may year, not know about One scandal. year, almost one year of workshops. Uh, four workshops in all. The first, the opening number was 22 minutes long and took mm. six weeks to conceive, choreograph, and shape. And they were all um, dream sequences. All of the all of the dance numbers, all of the uh, numbers. And uh, 
literally, we worked almost for a year on the project, and I got very close with Michael and Bob, and then they asked me to go with them to London uh, right after the last workshop to cast and be the associate on Chess, the original production in London. And I went over to London with Michael and Bob, and we cast the show, came back to New York, and that's when it all fell apart, and Michael got sick, and uh, that was over with. And Bob and Bob had been asked to go back to London to do a production of Follies and asked me if I would go with him, Bob Avian. So I went and I was associate choreographer to Bob Avian on Follies. This was the one with Julia McKenzie and Diana Rigg. Uh, Mike Ockrent directed it. Uh, Cameron produced it. We were at the Shaftesbury Theater. I, another amazing experience for me. And then I came back to New York after that experience and I was called to go to an audition at 890 Broadway for this new musical. It was at this point, it was called The Robbins Project. And I went into a room, and every dancer who was an associate or an assistant or a dance captain was in that room. I'm telling you, they all were there. And it was like 40 people, and they'd been dancing all day long. And I got there very late in the day. Grover Dale was giving the combination. We learned cool from West Side Story. And we learned something from Fiddler on the Roof, maybe part of the bottle dance, and uh, something from King and I. Jerry Robbins came into the room, and he was probably, in my memory, he was there for 30 minutes tops. He walked into the room. He sat down. A general introduction. Uh, we all said hi. We danced in groups for him. He left. And the next morning, I get a phone call. Mr. Robbins would like you to meet him at this studio to dance. I said, great. So I went that day, and Cynthia and Rubia and I were the only two in the studio mm. with him and uh, and one other gentleman. And we started lifting choreography from the video of the film A Fiddler on the Roof. We were working off of the film trying to lift the choreography. And that was our first introduction with him in a room dancing and the next two years of my life were going through the Robbins canon and either lifting it from film from the Ford's 50th flying to London to meet the original uh, shimmy girl from the Ford's 50th and learning the steps from her uh, lifting things from paper from old stage managers notes that he could not he could not assemble the uh, Max Sinnott Ballet, but some stage manager who had been through three divorces still had the notes. <laughs> and we were setting up chairs and just walking out the notes, and suddenly it spurred something. Meeting with Nanette Fabre and learning I still get jealous from her memory and from kinescopes. And uh, it was an amazing uh, period of my life. And I think Jerry Robbins and I got along because I didn't really know what was happening. As I think back, I was very young and sure he was he was the top, but I have this um maybe it's a good thing about me, I don't know, but when I meet someone who's famous, I treat them like I treat anyone else. It's not like uh you know, I don't put people on pedestals. And because I was honest with him and because I was chummy chummy with him. He he relied on me a lot. He relied on me a lot and would ask me questions that I'm sure he didn't ask other people. And I would answer him honestly. And uh, 
we had a wonderful relationship, but I learned so much from him about choreographing. For instance, when I was doing the um, the number in Full Monty where uh, the end of the act, Michael Jordan's ball, where the guys are playing basketball and I chose to make the ball invisible. It's all imagined. There's no basketball in the number. They're pretending. And from this, they learn from basketball moves that they all can move together and suddenly that becomes, that informs how they're going to strip. It's, it's basically a staging idea that turns into a dance idea. And it's based on what the characters know and can do that's conceivable for those characters. That's the job of a choreographer in a musical. And I learned that from Jerry Robbins, from the Dreams Come True ballet, which was cut from Jerome Robbins' Broadway. But there was this wonderful ballet where a girl sitting on a couch reading Photoplay magazine, dreaming of being a silent movie star, and up from behind her couch comes Gary Cooper, and comes Ramon Navarro, and comes, you know, all of the great uh, Valentino, and they all do these routines with her that are based on silent film uh, movies, but they're they're storytelling in dance, and he we had it on videotape, and he was going to uh, at the end of Jerome Robbins Broadway, all of the videotape collections were kept in this safe because in Charlie Blackwell, the stage manager, had the combination, and it was you know an equity rule; nobody could get these videotapes, and you know it was really serious because pirating and all that. He was So Jerry and I were going through the tapes, Jerry Robbins and I. And he said, oh, let's throw this one out. Let's destroy this one. Let's, I said, don't destroy that. Give that to the library. Give that to the library, that Dreams Come True Ballet. And he said, why? And I said, because nobody does that. Nobody does that. And some young choreographer is going to need to research to know how to tell a ballet based on pedestrian movement and make it brilliant. And that's what you've done here. And if I hadn't learned this from you... I wouldn't be able to do, I wouldn't have, it would have been different. I would have done it differently. So that that's one instance where that experience is priceless. Well, you talk about going to film versions, kinescopes, and <clears throat> stage manager's notes and all that. Is that because chore- choreography is not written down like music is because it doesn't exist on a, on a page somewhere? It's really, you know, that you can you can write it and you can notate, and everybody does, and everybody has their own system, and Laban notation is one thing, and... We have videotapes, people. We have cameras. Nowadays we do. Nowadays. Yeah. Jerry Robbins said to me <laughs> during Jerome Robbins, he said, the first thing you should invest in is a video camera and you should record everything you choreograph. Put it on record. Imagine if I had a video record of everything I'd choreographed right now, how much easier it would be to do this retrospect Broadway show. It would have been... Not only would it have been easier, it would have been much, much cheaper to produce <laughs> because poor Manny Eisenberg had to pay for two years of digging that stuff up. As we talk about these incredible people that you had the opportunity to work with as you, your career was developing, as you branched into choreography and now directing, are there things that you learned from them that you can say, I do this because I got it from them, or are there are things you do very differently because of the way you saw them do things? Uh, well, the the Full Monty thing is certainly, for instance, I don't often think about it while I'm doing it. I, I'll be doing the work and I'll think, oh God, that's exactly how Jerry would have approached that. Or, you know, there are, there are some moves in uh, Full 
in, in Legally Blonde, scenic moves, transition moves that I wish Michael were around to see. I know that Michael Bennett would have been thrilled by the way I moved that show because that's what Michael loved to do. He loved to move the show. And that certainly rubbed off on me. I have seen some shows this season where I'm literally sitting and waiting for the scenery to change and nothing's happening and the story isn't moving forward and I'm not being I'm not being compelled by the music or I'm not being compelled by anything that's me speaking and and you know I tend to like to be kept involved However you're going to keep me involved, keep me involved. Keep me interested. I shouldn't be thinking about my laundry while I'm watching a Broadway show. Mm -hmm. We've spoken about your transition from choreographer to adding director. We've talked about how you started dancing tell, and, and working ultimately as an assistant with some amazing people. How did you begin to choreograph and when did you begin to choreograph? You know, the crazy thing is, is I began choreographing when I began dancing. I mean, in a funny way, I would make up my own routines. I would make up routines for myself and my partner in the dance studio. I would make up routines for the band. I would make up routines for the pom-pom team at my high school. I would choreograph the high school shows. I choreographed in college. I choreographed co commercials. I choreographed so many films before I ever got a Broadway show. Scent of a Woman... Uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous, uh, The Mirror Has Two Faces, Meet Joe Black, In and Out with Kevin Klein. I mean, these were all film jobs that I got while I was waiting to get a Broadway show. And how did you get those? Um, well, I had an agent. Uh, uh, Eric Shepard at the time at ICM was representing me as a young choreographer. Uh, and I also, as a dancer, had an agency, Julie McDonald and Tony Selznick, who are now McDonald and Selznick out in Los Angeles, and they were representing me. And you know, a lot of so the you film offers. Pushing you. Once, once I did Scent of a Woman. Scent of a Woman was a fluke. I literally was in the Will Rogers Follies. It was eleven o'clock at night, and I had gotten a call backstage that they were shooting this film across the street at seven fifty seventh Avenue, and they wanted me to come over to talk to me about this tango. And I went over and I met Ron Schwari, who now produces Medium and has had an illustrious film career as a producer. And um, I met um, Marty Bress, the director. And they told me that they were doing this tango for Pacino and what would I do? And they played me some music and I danced around. And they said, we'd like you to come to his tango class tomorrow and meet him. He was taking, he'd been taking authentic tango lessons. Mm. And, uh, but it wasn't a choreographed idea. And he was getting very nervous and frightened because the shoot date of the scene was coming up and he didn't have a routine yet. So I went in and I watched what the tango teacher had been teaching him and I started to put together some of those steps and constructed a choreographed segment. And within two hours, he had something that he could repeat. He was ecstatic. He was a very happy man, and Ron Schwari was a very, very happy man, as was Marty Brest, and that was my first time choreographing a movie. And after that came out, and the success of that film, and specifically that dance, which was edited amazingly, I might add, 
um, that sort of made people take notice. Well, that was your first film choreography. It was. It job. was my first big film credit. How about stage? Now, you were associate choreographer on Grease, revival of that, and then your good man Charlie Brown was your first full choreographer credit. Charlie Brown was my first credit. Thank you, Michael Mayer. Michael, who is a is an incredible director, as we all know, this season with Spring Awakening and a friend, uh, he had seen a production of Follies that I did at the Paper Mill Playhouse and asked me if I would be interested in doing Charlie Brown. And I said, yeah, it's a Broadway show. And Jack O'Brien actually had just asked me to choreograph The Grinch out at the Old Globe. They were just getting ready to do the first production of The Grinch a month before this. And Jack and I had been trying to work together for almost nine years. Uh, Manny Eisenberg put us together at a lunch and said, you guys should work together. This was nine years before we ever worked together. Mm. We had tried several times and it just didn't work out. And uh, and I said, you're not going to believe this. I just got asked to do my first Broadway show. And he said, you've got to do it. This is Jack. And I said, so I did Charlie Brown. And uh, and I got my foot in the door. And Mike Isaacson and Kristen Katsky, who were producers on that, are the same producers on Legally Blonde, two of them who are giving me my first time as a director. So now taking a very famous comic strip, Charles Schultz's Peanuts comic strip, yes. and putting that to dance and music, how does one approach that? You have comic strip characters being played by real people. Obviously. Yeah, I mean, it was it was very simple. It was more musical staging than uh-huh. it was choreography. Uh-huh. I mean, the whole show, they're kids, basically, you know, so you, you keep it light. And it's, again, they're not dancers. They're specifically children dancing and moving. Uh, then very different, the full Monty, your next show. Well, Full Monty was all, you know, I I said to Jack O'Brien the very first time we talked about it, I said, if these guys do a pirouette in the first number, we're sunk. <laughs> I said, I have to think of these guys like I think of my brother, who's the athletic director. I said, how would he dance? And, and what would he do to put on a show where he has to dance? H- how would he even go through the process of thinking about those steps? Who would he get to teach him? How would he convince six other guys to take their clothes off and how are they going to move to make money so he can keep seeing his son that's what the story's about and again the the choreography had to inform the story well you have to first know and understand the characters and then keep your work always very faithful always, to the characters always absolutely it's always been. i mean that's one of the things that robbins taught me you know i've said this before but he did we we talked a lot about this we talked about style uh, I remember having a very specific conversation because I'm a huge, huge Fosse fan. I think Fosse is like one of the greatest choreographers in the world, and I never got to work with Fosse, uh, unfortunately, uh, although I do his style beautifully. Um, <laughs> but uh, Fosse had a very specific style, and it showed up in everything he did. And you can pick it out in, in any piece of Fosse choreography. You can't say the same thing about Robbins or Bennett. Mm-hmm. And I remember having a conversation with him, you know, that, and, and I, I put it this way because most people understand this. The, the um, you know, in Fiddler on the Roof, the guys in Fiddler on the Roof don't dance like the Jets and Sharks dance in West Side Story. Mm-hmm. They have specific moves that are specific to their character. And uh, that is as important for a choreographer in writing 
the vocabulary of the steps for the character as it is for the actual book writer in writing the vocabulary of the, the words that they'll speak. Well, you say Fosse had a definite Fosse style that carried yes. through everything. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a different thing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a critic, uh-huh. and I don't ever want to be. But what I, can, what I can tell you is that his movement in his choreography was always compelling and kept you interested and kept you engaged. And that's another job that a choreographer must do, no matter what they're doing. You commented that on Monty, you found the moves from your brother, from basketball, from from specific touch points. Is that a process you have to go through with every show to find that specific vocabulary? It, it, it definitely. It's a process that that comes as you're developing the show. Uh, it, in Hairspray, for instance, I was born too late to know the specifics of dances in 1962. I was born in 1960. Uh, the first, my first memory of dancing actually was 65, 66. I was a kid dancing to the jukebox in my parents' garage to Jersey Boys, to, to you know, <laughs> Big seasons. Girls Don't Cry seasons, and yeah. things like that with my relatives. And that was already too late. John Waters, again, as an author, said to me, he said, the choreography in Hairspray has got to be before 1962 because in 62, all innocence went out the window when Kennedy was shot. And again, before, I don't have those memories. My brothers do. Uh, but as I studied the period, the twist was the big step. Mm. And, you know, the pony, the Watusi, the locom you know, there are like five steps that I had to create the entire tapestry of Hairspray out of five authentic steps. Well, with something like Hairspray, you have a very specific frame of reference of existing dances. Where do you go for... Rocky Horror. <laughs> well, Rocky Horror is a little bit more exciting because it it probably is a little closer to the world and the freedom of creation in um, Broadway Bears has offered me. Rocky Horror is literally about expressing yourself. Uh, everything's everything's valuable. There is no wrong move. You can't come up with the wrong move. That's what it's about. It's about being able to express yourself. So. Uh, you 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 have much more freedom in that show to go crazy, especially at the end when they're doing the runway show, and you know it's it's it can get pretty wild. And it was fun. I, I loved Rocky Horror. Well, Rocky Horror Show was a revival. Obviously, it, it had been was. done before. So, how did you interpret the choreography well, versus ne- the, the previous other than ones? the other than the time warp? Uh-huh. And had seen had seen the movie several times when I was in college. I didn't really have any ideas about how I was going to do that do that show other than I wanted Janet to take her top off (laughs) and she did I convinced her to rip off her top in the number (laughs) in the case of Rocky Horror where you have a movie but you didn't need to hew to it doing a show like Never Gonna Dance is interesting because it was very much in the style of certain movies namely Fred Astaire films well it, it, it was taken from swing time so uh, when Jay Harris asked me to choreograph and 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 Michael Greif, um, one of the things that we talked about was how do we create the style without copying it? 
And so I did a lot of research on Fred and Ginger films. I, I was very familiar with the films, and I loved that style. And I, I particularly love that style of dancing. I love dancing with a female partner and doing many of those ballroom sort of moves. Had you had the opportunity to do that kind of dancing yourself? In I dance had with, with Jody Mocha. We had done several of those kinds of routines, and uh, we were just we just fit. Mm-hmm. And uh, so as, as I started to develop the show, um, it was... I did a lot of research on that, and and I and I also danced with um, Sid Charisse twice mm. in my life. I partnered Sid Charisse for Ron Field on the Academy Awards and in a special of hers, uh, "Sentimental Journeys" for PBS. I think it was her and Tony Martin, and I actually danced with her. I actually met Ginger Rogers and have a very wonderful picture of me dipping her in her hotel suite when I was very young. Wow! Uh, but it was truly magical, and she signed it for me and. Uh, I had a great, great respect and great love for those musicals and the style in which they dance. I mean, th- that artistry can never be repeated. So our my job was to try and uh, give the essence of and bring it as close as possible to the stage. I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the three pas de deux that were created for Never Gonna Dance for uh, Nancy LeMenninger and Noah Racy. I think they were some of the best work that I've ever done. And uh, I know that those dances, there are a lot, many people still come up to me and tell me how much they loved those pas de deux. Well, it's also a very romantic form of dancing. Very romantic. Some of the other work. It's beautiful stuff. Yeah. You had two shows that were actually running simultaneously with very different types of uh, choreography, La Cage Fold, Revival of That, and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yes, both on the French Riviera. <laughs> but very, very, very different. <laughs> and that's temperament. it. And yeah. that's it. That's right. It. <laughs> one's all about class and one's all about ass. <laughs> no, the Cajels were just my... Uh, uh, well, Dirty Rotten was all about class, and, and it had to be classy. And, and even in casting the show, the very, very beginning, I said to Jack, I said, you know, we really can't cast kids. We need to cast dancers with an air of adulthood so they can pull off these expensive jewels and the style so you can believe that they can be uh, swindled by these uh, these con artists. And, uh, and that was really what that was about. And... Uh, Lacage, I'd wanted to do Lacage for forever. I, I remember seeing the original production and liking it very, very much. But uh, I didn't think it had completely tapped into the gay sensibility. But of course, when it was done, you know, it was it was a time when you couldn't be as gay as you can be today. Well, it, was, it was 1982. Yeah, it was, it was completely different. Yeah. And... Uh, and I thought we'd be able to be a little more gay nowadays in this revival. And as it turns out, we we were. And certainly all the dances were original ideas and thoughts that I had come up with. And, uh, um, you know, uh, Jerry Zachs was wonderful because he just let me take the ball and run with it. And because the dances are truly uh, performances within the show, they are they are a part of... The uh, entertainment, the uh, showgirl, yeah, the show, you know, the show within a show. So I was able to conceive and do whatever I wanted to do, and uh, and uh, I had a ball doing it. In uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, how much of what you did was uh, because of the capabilities of some of the actors, particularly uh, Norman Butts? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you had a guy who just went 
wild, honestly. Well, I pretty much let Norbert go. I mean, you know, uh-huh. it was hard just to get Norbert to do anything twice. Mm-hmm. You know, he won the Fred Astaire Award for Best Dancer in a, in a musical that year. And I still tease him to this day. I said, <laughs> how could you win that award? Uh, you know, because it was just crazy. But he is truly nimble and, and, a, and a physical comedian. I mean, he's just amazing to watch. So, you know, I would a lot of times with principals, I allow them the freedom to find it and create it. And then I shape it on them rather than try to give give them, you know, something that I can do that they will never be able to move like me. Jerry Robbins said to me, he said, you know, it's much more exciting to watch an actor try to dance than watch a dancer try to act. Mm-hmm. I remember, and I have to ask you this very specifically, I saw a Dirty Rotten Scandals first night of previews, then again opening night. Oh, wow. First night of previews, Norbert during the one number, I guess was the Oklahoma number where Lithgow's character is dancing. Right. Norbert is told to go off stage and, and to He's watch. He up goes in the box. up into, into a box seat yes. hanging over the audience, right. literally perched like a monkey on the brass rail looking down on the stage. Yes. The next time I saw it, he wasn't up there anymore. We cut it. <laughs> was, was that the, the uh, lawyers or the insurance agents saying cut it or what? No, no, no. We were just, <laughs> we were just cutting Kind of making was, things tighter. It was a wonderful scene. It was. Was, but, it, was it his idea to do that? No, no, no. It was in the script for him really? to go up to the box and go go out into the audience. Jack put him in the box there. Yeah. Well, he was later, I think, just in the box, but not perched on yeah. the rail. No, no, no. No, that was just Norbert being Norbert. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> As our time is drawing close, you mentioned earlier on uh, pitching a burlesque project in Las Vegas. You also alluded to... Uh, that you'd done five adaptations of movies into musicals, and you already knew what six and seven were going to be. <laughs> right. Can you tell us a little more about, about what the upcoming projects are? Well, although there are no signed contracts, I guess I can speak about two. We are doing a reading of Catch Me If You Can, which is a new musical uh, based on the film uh, with a book by Terrence McNally and a, and a new score that I've heard many of the songs and they're spectacular by Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. Um, Jack is going to be directing. I'll be choreographing. And we're doing a reading in July uh, with uh, Steven Spielberg, Walter Parks, the DreamWorks folks. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, keep moving forward with that one. Um, I've been asked to uh, take the documentary Mad Hot Ballroom and turn it into a Broadway musical. And I saw the movie and I left the movie theater and I was in tears because it uh, touched me in a way a lot of films haven't in the past. And For those so, who don't know it, it's, it's children in New York City schools. In New York City schools. Who, doing ballroom uh, dancing. Who are, who are learning to be young ladies and gentlemen by through the art of ballroom dancing. Uh, and it's a program that was uh, started by Pierre Tulane, I think. Uh, um, he was in... Uh, Grand Hotel. He was a dancer for Tommy and is a wonderful, wonderful man. And it's a wonderful program. My assistant actually teaches in the program. And, uh, and it's just a very special idea and a wonderful, a wonderful story worth telling and how it can change someone's life. I mean, dancing, you know, it's a metaphor. Are you going to sit out 
on the sidelines your whole life, or are you going to get up and dance? I mean, it's a great, it could be a great story. So. We touched on something ever so briefly at the start of our, our chat about Broadway Bears, which you created, conceived, directed, and uh, equity, uh, Broadway Cash Equity Fights Aid. Tell us a little bit more about Broadway Bears, well, what that is. Well, Broadway Bears is a benefit I do once a year, mm-hmm. or now I executive produce once a year with Broadway Cares Equity Fights Aids to raise money for, for the organization. When I was in the Will Rogers Follies, I was dancing practically naked on a drum. Somebody said, mm-hmm. you should go do that and raise money for Broadway Cares. A light bulb went off over my head, and I put together this modern-day burlesque with six guys. We danced on the bar at Splash. We made $8,000. Cut to last year, the 17th, 16th edition, uh, one night, 200 Broadway dancers. Every celebrity who's starring in a Broadway show takes part in it. It We made $659,000. We have a grand sponsor, Mac, Mac uh, Viva Glam, has been our sponsor for the past seven years. Um, it is, I did it because AIDS was, uh, you know, a big part of the uh, New York scene, and it was taking away a lot of creative people, including Michael Bennett. I was trying to do something. I was volunteering at GMHC, but I felt like I could do more, so I put on a show. And in the past... 16 years, we've raised over $4 million for Broadway Cares, and uh, it's something that's near and dear to my heart, and because of it, because I did it from my heart, uh, people got to see my choreography, and in turn, I'm a choreographer on Broadway, and now a director, and the project has spawned a spin-off burlesque show that I've been pitching for a while, that's been um, bought up by Pace Entertainment, as a uh, as a show that we're trying to pitch for a casino in Las Vegas, and we have a couple of casinos that are very interested. So we're going to find out soon where it's going to play, where it's going to be the home of Peep Show. Meanwhile, audiences can go to the Palace Theater and see Legally Blonde, which you choreographed and directed. That's right. And on that note, Jerry Mitchell, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, Help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.